This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Every year, Goldman Sachs Research puts out a report on the state of the oil and natural gas industry. This year's report is out, and it details how big oil has entered into, quote, an age of restraint. To talk through what that means, we're joined by Michaela De La Vigna, Commodity Equity Business Unit Leader in EMEA. Michaela is based in London, but is on a business trip here in New York. Michaela, welcome to the program. Thank you. So you're just out with this year's top projects report, which analyzes the health of big oil companies every year. You talk about the industry entering a period of restraint within the investment cycle. What do you mean by that? The period of restraint is a period where fear around long-term demand destruction from decarbonization and electric vehicles is forcing the industry to really rationalize its capital investment. It's also a time when funding becomes less available for long cycle new developments. And the natural resource is a business with higher barriers to entry and with fewer players in a more consolidated industry, which tends to mean higher returns. That's why, strangely enough, these periods of restraint, like the one we're entering today and like the 1990s, tend to be much more profitable than the periods of expansion like the 70s or the early 2000s, which seem to be golden age for oil, but actually lead to poor returns and to poor performance of most of the industry, particularly big oils. So how does the finding of this year's report compare to what you saw last year when you looked at the top projects? Well, one of the big differences is that for a decade until last year, the report continued to show an expansion of resources, particularly from shale that got bigger and bigger and bigger. The interesting thing is, in this year's version, for the first time, we're actually revising down the scale of the shale resources which really, I think, signifies this entry into the age of restraint, a time when it's not about adding resources, it's about developing them in a more concentrated and in a more efficient and profitable way. You already mentioned that this industry works in very long cycles. Put the new restraint period in some context within the 30-year oil and natural gas investment cycle. Describe the different phases and what the United States has seen over the past 15 years to lead to this restraint. If we look back to the 90s, what led to a restrained period there was 12 million barrels per day of OPEX spare capacity waiting on the side that created this sense of abundance of resources, but at the end of the day, actually always led to a market that was quite tight from an inventory perspective, which is also why the forward curve of oil was always in backwardation. That is the front end at the premium to the back end. I think we're entering into a similar period where concerns around long-term demand distraction, in particular with the focus on electric vehicles, is creating, I think, a similar mechanism of perceived long-term abundance of oil, but actually always near-term tightness, and the curve has shifted into backwardation again. As a contrast, the 70s and the early 2000s were a clear period where the market thought that there was a lack of resources, where companies were rewarded to explore, to try new technologies, where financing was widely available for everybody. Just to give you a number to kind of signify it, we think that today there's seven big oil companies that dominate all of the long-cycle mega-projects worldwide, like we had in the 90s. 
the equivalent in the 2000s was 50 companies. 50 companies were attempting to do mega projects on a worldwide basis. And that is typical of expansionary phases that also leads to an unmanageable overheating of the supply chain, which leads to cost inflation and overall to lower returns for the whole industry. So you mentioned the move from 50 to 7. What brought about the industry consolidation and what does the industry look like today? Financing. If you look at reserve-based lending, which was one of the key areas of financing for long-cycle projects, like a new deep water project in Ghana, let's say, that has completely dried up. And banks are now focusing on funding renewables rather than funding long-cycle oil and gas projects. What this means is that the only companies who can actually execute a new mega project in oil and gas are those who can sell finance, largely big oils on a global basis and some national oil companies in their own country. On the other side, shale, which is short cycle, it's still getting relatively easily financed. And that is why this is actually the exception, the only market that not only has not consolidated, has actually incrementally fragmented, making it very difficult to manage the logistics, the transportation, and the supply chain. So what are the prospects for consolidation in the shale industry? Or do you think it looks like this five years hence? No, I think it will change. I think shale will end up consolidating because there is tremendous value in aggregating acreages in large, continuous places where companies can thoroughly plan the logistics, employ big data to enhance the way they target the oil reservoirs and in which they can plan the logistics to get the oil out. So I think it needs to happen. One day it will happen. What has delayed it is actually the improved oil price environment since OPEC implemented the cut. So in some ways, with OPEC implementing the production cut and supporting a higher oil price, they delayed the process of consolidation in shale that would have led to a lower cost, more efficient shale production. You mentioned that market perception tends to be that oil producers perform best in rising price environments, but historical evidence shows that producers actually fare poorly in expansionary phases. How should investors be thinking about this new phase? I think investors are still very skeptical about the sector. They've seen these companies making very little money at times of rising oil prices. And so they're rightly skeptical about how much money they can make in a period of lower oil prices. But that's where I think our analysis on the complete change in industry structure, on effectively going back to an oligopoly for mega projects in Deepwater and LNG, to the rebirth of what we call the new seven sisters of our age, that improved industry structure is what leads to the improved returns. But because investors are still very skeptical about it, that's where the opportunity comes up. That's why we think that big oils are still very much undervalued at a time of structural market change and improving returns. So you're forecasting a production slowdown in non-OPEC countries in a couple of years, in 2020. What's driving that? It's driven by two key factors. One is shale, where the natural decline rate of a shale well is much deeper and much more sudden than for a normal well from a conventional oil field. The way that comes out in terms of production is that it's very easy to grow shale, 
But the moment that Shell starts to have a big historical level of production, that needs to be replaced pretty much every other year. So effectively, today Shell can grow very fast. In three to five years' time, Shell will need to run very fast to stand still, which is a very different environment. Secondly, because we had an extraordinary pipeline of project that were sanctioned, that got the final investment decision in the 2011 to 13 period, and which are being all delivered now, also the long cycle mega projects are going through a mega phase of delivery that lasts pretty much all the way until 2019, 2020, but afterwards it dries up. And so these two factors lead effectively to non-OPEC going from a period of exceptional growth right now to being very difficult to grow into the 2020s. Cost deflation is another restraint phase characteristic, and we're seeing a deterioration of the oil cost curve for the first time in a decade. What's driving that? What is driving that is shale, because shale is showing two characteristics right now, which are a big change to what we've seen so far. First, the resource base is starting to shrink for the first time as the sector focuses more on exploration. And secondly, the extreme fragmentation of the industry. Just to give you an idea, a Herfindahl index of concentration for deep water would give you about 20% right now. In shale, it gives you less than 3%. Such an extraordinarily fragmented industry with uncontiguous acreage, with poor planning, is leading to inflation. That is why we've seen the cost curve for oil globally from our top project deteriorate for the first time in 10 years providing what we think is very good support to the long end of the oil price that we think should be around $60 Brent. So Shale's essentially become the swing producer and is setting the cost for the industry? Shale has always been the swing producer because it's short cycle, but it has become, as you're correctly saying, the marginal producer as well, really supporting the long end of the curve through inefficient, fragmented and inflationary developments. So another driver of restraint is improved production delivery. And you and your colleagues expect this year to be a record year of both capacity addition and production growth. Why is that? Because it's amazing how in this new world with a more concentrated industry structure, you can deliver projects so much better. To put a couple of numbers to that, back at the beginning of the 2010s, the average under-delivery versus expectation each year was between 10 and 15%. Today, for the first time since we started this report in the early 2000s, we are seeing over-delivery, i.e. the sector actually providing more production than expected. That complete change in delivery, which comes from a better management of the supply chain, is typical of the age of restraints and is one of the drivers of better production and better returns for big oils. You mentioned that the industry is focused on the shift to electric vehicles. Let's talk about perhaps the biggest long-term demand disruption in the industry, decarbonization, specifically the growth of electric vehicles or EVs. What is that secular shift in transportation doing in the short term, and what can we expect in the long term? There are two effects of decarbonization. One is the future demand we will lose from it particularly thinking about electric vehicles for crude. And on the other side, the future supply we will lose because of the projects that the market doesn't fund anymore because of the concerns around decarbonization. Now, what I find interesting is that the demand we lose from the first driver 
is lower than the supply we lose for the second driver, at least we think until the early 2030s. And this is why we think that for the next 10-15 years, electric vehicles and decarbonization could actually be the best thing that could happen to the oil market and to big oils in particular. Interesting. So you've noted that there are a lot of barriers to full-scale adoption of electric vehicles. Costs need to come down. A lot of infrastructure needs to be put in place. We need charging stations, investment in the grid. Does that bottleneck around full-scale adoption going to help the industry remarkably in the short term, or is that just uh, built into the price already? Yeah, I think you raise a very important point. There's a lot of barriers to EV adoption. The way I tend to see it is you need three drivers of adoption. You need affordability, you need convenience, and then you need incentives from governments. If we think about affordability to go mass market, battery costs still need to halve from here, which requires tremendous technological improvement. From the point of view of convenience, we need a convenient charging infrastructure being laid out in the whole world. And we estimate the total investment for that will be about $6 trillion, about half of it in charging and half of it in a complete overhaul of the power distribution system. And then the third one is government incentives, which today in some countries are very generous. But let's remember that if there is a full transition away from combustion engine to EVs, the actual biggest profit pool that will be disrupted is the consuming country's taxes at the pump. Today, Germany, France, the UK make more money from taxes at the pump than Saudi Arabia, Iraq or Iran make from production. It's $850 billion globally, which is equivalent in many of these countries to between 4 and 8% of the national budget. So there's really a serious concern as to for how long these governments would really push for electric vehicles when the biggest profit pool being disrupted is their own. How are different governments thinking about that dilemma that they want to move as a policy matter to these electric vehicles, but they're reliant on the taxes to support a lot of their normal spending? I think the way it will work is the same way in which many of these big structural changes work. The governments provide a strong incentive at the very beginning because, to be fair, it's a meaningless amount in their budget. I think as it becomes closer in time and larger in scale, they will probably start to roll off a lot of those incentives and to really think in a more comprehensive way about the impact on their budget alongside the impact on the environment. Despite the decarbonization shift you discussed, you've also noted that big oil is entering a new golden age and is set to generate the highest free cash flow in the next decade. What's going on there? I think it will. And the reason why I think it will last for a prolonged period of time is this restraint, this sense of restraint that comes from the fears around decarbonization. Without restraint, I would be afraid that we go back into another expansionary period, which ends up wasting all of the value through inflation and inefficiencies. But because this restraint, this fear about decarbonization is so widespread, I think that will maintain high barriers to entry into the sector. It will foster this oligopoly of big oils that can coordinate and manage much better the supply chain and go back to similar improvement in returns than what we saw in the 90s, which, by the way, was a period characterized by a re-rating of big oils, by a contraction of the dividend yield, and overall by an outperformance 
versus the broader market of around 5% per annum over the entire decade. So you mentioned the consolidation. Who are the big players today in the industry? What's very interesting is we're seeing this new very consolidated market for LNG and deep water globally. This is what falls into the hands of what we call the new seven sisters, the seven big oils that effectively have recreated this oligopoly. It's the two big U.S. companies, Chevron and Exxon, and then it's BP, Shell, Total, ENI, and Statoil. This is the new group of the seven sisters dominating the global large developments. We also have had concentration in some specific local markets, where, for instance, Canadian heavy oil has also fallen into the hands of five local companies, and nowhere has also consolidated. But if we look on a global basis on deep water and LNG, it's the seven big sisters that are in the future going to do 80 to 90 percent of the global long cycle development. What about environmental regulation? Obviously, China has made a big push on policy and it's led to a certain tightening in the natural gas market. How do you see what's going on in China and similar dynamics in other countries playing out as people are incentivizing cleaner energy? For the next five to 10 years, Clearly, cleaner energy will mean a lot of renewables, but the cheapest, the quickest, the most important way to decarbonize and lower carbon emission and pollution will be to shift from coal to gas. And that is exactly what China is pushing for from a policy standpoint at this point in time. Bear in mind that a typical Western country would have about 25% in terms of gas as a percentage of the total energy mix and 15% from coal. China today is around 6-7% for gas, about 65% for coal. So that shift from coal to gas, I think, will be the first and the most important step in the path to decarbonization. And that is why we are very bullish on the LNG market long term, which will need to supply at least one third of the incremental gas demand. And where very little incremental investment in new fields have been taken in the last three, four years. That's why the next two years, we think we'll see a quadrupling of the amount of final investment decisions taken for new LNG projects worldwide. You also mentioned in the report that while big oil equity is poised to do well in this era of restraint, that you think the commodity will do as well. Explain that. It will do as well, but in a different way from what the market has experienced in the first decade of the 2000s. The way we think it will work is that the forward curve of oil will remain in backwardation. That is, with the front end of the oil price higher than the long end. It's just yet another way to signify this idea of near-term tightness, but this view of long-term abundance of oil. Because the way investors tend to invest in commodities, they tend to buy one, two, three months forward, roll it, and then buy again forwards. In a backwardated forward curve, you get a positive roll from that backwardation shape of the curve. And that's why I think in the coming years, like in the 90s, commodity investors will make good money mainly from the roll, mainly from the shape of the forward curve, rather than necessarily from that curve shifting upwards as it did in the 2000s, where investors made a lot of money from price appreciation, but lost so much money from the negative role, they actually made less money than in the 90s and less money than what we think they will make in the coming years. As long as backwardation remains in place. As long as backwardation remains in place, which was typical in the 90s, the last age of restraint, 
and what I think will be typical again of the environment we head into. So you've been covering the oil and gas industry for a long time, and you've seen these phases come and go. Are you surprised at how quickly we're back in an era of restraint now? Well, it took 15 years to get back to it. But yes, I am surprised by how quickly the industry has changed since 2014. But I think it is typical of when you enter into a completely new phase of the mega cycle. It happens faster and it lasts for longer than investors think. And investors tend to be slow to price it in, which is why I think we've got tremendous opportunities here for investors, both in big oils and in the commodity space. Michaela, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on April 16th, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.